0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and we are going to be talking about some fun science stories. And so, um, as always, you can find me throughout the week at uh, the Evidence-Based Facebook page, And you can also uh, listen to this and other episodes uh, at uh, the Uh, evidencebasedradio.com website and also at uh, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Uh, They are now available as um, podcasts. So that's exciting. And so I want to start out tonight with a couple of uh, shout outs before we get into the hard science. I want to start with a shout out to uh, black voters, especially black women voters, not women voters, black women voters in Alabama uh, who helped Doug Jones defeat, defeat the terrible, theocratic, unethical, and generally all-around creepy candidate from the other side uh, whose name doesn't even really deserve to be said, honestly. And uh, so, yeah, I am very happy about that. And again, um, as you have probably heard on social media, the way to be thankful for this is to support uh, Black people and especially Black women uh, with your support, both monetary and uh, as far as volunteering to help with their causes, and especially with, oh, I don't know, say, electing more of them to government so that we can have a government that actually represents more than just uh, white men, um, Christian white men, I should say. And so yeah, Uh, And I'd also like to remind you that the fight for net neutrality is not yet over. Uh, Luckily, if you're listening to this in Massachusetts locally, uh, we're pretty set Um, our uh, representatives and Um, certainly our senators are definitely uh, very much in favor of net neutrality and are very much on the forefront of fighting for it. But uh, there is still things that can be done. Um, Obviously, it's in Congress's hands right now, but it's also in the hands of organizations uh, that are suing. And so um, you can uh, still help by calling uh, the government and expressing your views that net neutrality is very important and you can also uh, contribute in any way that you can to these organizations that are definitely uh, doing their best to fight for net neutrality. And obviously this is a really important topic for this station because as an independent radio station that uses the web to reach out, To a large amount of listeners, net neutrality is definitely a must for us. Um, We don't have any money to get a fast lane or to get bumped to the top of a search engine or any other terrible thing that could happen uh, without net neutrality. So definitely um, help keep up the fight. And uh, I definitely don't want to stop talking about this before I give a shout out to the two women on the board, um, Mignon Clyburn and Jessica Rosenworcel, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, for their votes against changing the status of the internet. And uh, yeah, they're very fierce women who deserve our praise and support. And I definitely uh, suggest listening to... Uh, certainly um, Mignon uh, Clyburn's uh, descent, because it's pretty fantastic. Okay, and finally, before we get into stories, I want to uh, note that today is the anniversary of the uh, Venera 7 probe, and it's landing on Venus. So on December fifteenth, 1970, the Soviet Union's Venera 7 landed on Venus, and sent back the first data from the surface of another planet. Now, of course, as you probably know, uh, because Venus's atmosphere is so corrosive, the lander only lasted a short time. It broadcast data for approximately 53 minutes, including approximately 20 minutes on the surface of the planet. And of course, it confirmed what we now know, which is that the planet is basically completely and utterly hostile. Uh, There's no possibility of liquid water. Uh, Humans would die pretty much instantly. Uh, The pressure on the surface of Venus is intense. Uh, There is sulfuric acid in the atmosphere. All sorts of great things that would make it completely and utterly uh, uninhabitable, uh, to pretty much most life as we know it. Uh, of course, we have since found uh, extremophiles that are able to adapt to amazing and just completely surprising uh, atmospheric conditions and uh, heat conditions, temperature conditions, both extreme heat and extreme cold. Uh, to lack of oxygen, lack of water, lack of pretty much everything we used to think was essential to life. So there could still technically be bacterial life on Venus. But the problem is, is that we'd have to devise better probes in order to try and find that because we still can't really send anything to Venus because our materials have not advanced enough in order to make that feasible. But, you know, maybe sometime in the future, but definitely there are no, uh, you know, little green men there. If we're lucky, there are some uh, bacterial uh, mats (laughs) or uh, tiny microorganisms that are uh, living in those extreme environments. Okay, so let us move on now and actually start in on tonight's stories. And so I wanted to start with research that resonates very well in uh, today's climate. And so a group of researchers, including Field Museum Anthropology Curator Gary Feynman, have started to explore the connection between house size and inequality in um, ancient sites. And so what they found, based on a sample of 63 cases was that it turns out inequality was greater in Eurasia than in North and South America. This is the first step towards quantifying the extent of inequality in the deep past, says Feynman uh, in a paper recently published in Nature. It allows us to put contemporary growth of inequality into a broader historic context. And so the team looked at the size of houses at each site and assigned measures of inequality Called uh, Gini coefficients in order to compare different societies' levels of inequality. So, a Gini coefficient is a measure where zero is complete equality and one is basically only one person or family controls all of the wealth. So, for instance, a hunter gatherer society has a median Gini of 0.17. Whereas small-scale, low-intensity farming has a score of about 0.27, and large-scale farming societies have a rating of 0.35. Inequality has a lot of subtle and potentially pernicious effects on societies, says Tim Kohler, a professor of archaeology and evolutionary anthropology at Washington State University and the study's lead author. People need to be aware that inequality can have deleterious effects on health outcomes, on mobility, on degree of social trust, on social solidarity, all of these things. We're not helping ourselves by being so unequal. And so what they found was that inequality rose steadily in Eurasian sites whilst it plateaued in the Americas. And so what they suspect is the difference is that the uh, Eurasian peoples had access to large draft animals. So cattle, horses, water buffalo, and so having such animals allowed Eurasian farmers to amass large areas of land because they could till more land with less physical labor. And so because the Americas lacked large draft animals, remember, there were no horses or cattle here until they were brought by the Spanish um, and the English. The uh, largest sort of animal that was domesticated in the Americas was the llama um, or, uh, you know, the vacuna, which is a little bit smaller. But those were sort of the, the biggest animals that people were uh, domesticating in the Americas. Um, You know, in the north, there were dogs and things like that, but nothing that is equivalent to a draft horse or a uh, buffalo or a uh, or a um, anything like that. And so because the Americas lacked those large draft animals, the elites were not able to develop such large land holdings. And so thus inequality was not as great. If you have a herd of horses, you do not need a lot of labor to maintain them, but they are still a potential valuable resource for long-distance trade and military raids, explains Feynman. Opportunities that yield big rewards and wealth without a heavy dependence on local labor have the potential to make you richer to concentrate wealth. And of course, we see this pattern, for instance, in medieval Europe, where an elite controlled large swaths of land and livestock, which were supported by a large number of serfs who often lived in very poor circumstances in comparison to their lords. And of course, a lot of those uh, serfs weren't actually doing work in the actual fields. They were sort of ancillary people. And so the sort of giant estates could run with less people. And so therefore, you didn't have to necessarily Spend as much money dealing with that. And especially by that point, you had already, these lords had already built up enough social capital that they could not pay these people basically anything and, in fact, extract uh, rents from these people. And, you know, part of the problem, of course, is that. We talk about this as if it's something in the past, uh, but this inequality is absolutely still with us today, uh, especially here in America. It's funny. We think of the United States as a land of equality, but in reality, the most unequal societies in the past were still more equal than the USA today, says Feynman. The last few decades are when the wealth inequality in the U.S. ballooned and that's the same time that you start seeing giant McMansions popping up at a pace not seen in the recent past. And so uh, this inequality impacts us in many ways. And uh, it turns out that the Gini number for the U.S. is now between 0.81 and 085 Uh, remember that the highest is one. Uh, So that's pretty incredibly high, especially for a first world nation. Um, And again, uh, they note that this is almost certainly the highest for any developed uh, country. And so Kohler pointed to a paper in Science from earlier this year, that showed that rates of mobility for US children went from 90% for those born in 1940 to 50% for those born in the 1980s. And I can imagine that for those born later, the percentage is even more dismal. And unfortunately, decreasing inequality is usually fairly difficult to... um, Decreasing inequality is usually difficult. Kohler has documented four periods of mounting inequality in the ancient Pueblo society each ended with violence before a return to greater equality. The last actually coincided with the abandonment of the Mesa Verde Pueblo. In each case, you see not just the de- this decline in Gini scores, but we also see an increase in violence that accompanies that decline. Uh, he notes, we could be concerned in the, U- in the United States if that uh, Gini score is continues to, um, sorry, if uh, we could be concerned in the United States that if genies get too high, we could be inviting revolution, or we could be inviting state collapse. There's only a few things that are going to decrease our genies dramatically. And of course, I would say I, for one, am ready for the revolution. Uh, Clearly, I don't advocate for violence necessarily, uh, but I do think that we need to be more proactive and fight back against the current policies uh, because I don't see our GINI score doing anything other than going even higher at this point. Um, Everything that is going on in Washington right now screams that it's going to go higher. And um, I am definitely not okay with that. (laughs) Okay, let's temper that rather bleak story uh, with a few more interesting and uh, potentially exciting ones uh, so that we can sort of cleanse our palate. So uh, the results of a new study have solved a 60-year-old mystery regarding the source of energetic, and thus potentially damaging particles in Earth's radiation belts. Um, And so that's the Van Allen belts. And so it turns out that the mystery was solved using a CubeSat satellite. Uh, This is a small shoebox-sized satellite, um, and this has been a big push with NASA has been trying to uh, give people the ability to create these CubeSats, that can be uh, taken up into space, several of them at the same time. And um, it's just been a really great way to do sort of small scale science, which can potentially, as we'll see here, have a big impact. And what's cool about this one is that it was designed by students at the University of Colorado Boulder. So the team's analysis of the data shows that these energetic electrons in the Earth's inner radiation belt, um, especially near the inner edge, are actually created by cosmic rays from supernova explosions. And This is according to Professor Zhilin uh, Li of UC Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, or LASP, and also a professor in the Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department. The team found that during, quote unquote, cosmic ray albedo neutron decay or CRAND, uh, cosmic rays enter Earth's atmosphere and collide with neutral atoms, which when hit create a splash of charged particles, including electrons, which then become trapped in the Van Allen belt uh, by the Earth's magnetic fields, field. Knowing about how this happens can help with better understanding and hopefully better forecasting the arrival of these energetic electrons, which can damage both satellites and, uh, more importantly, spacewalking astronauts. Uh, Because remember, when you're out in space, there is a lot of stuff that can Uh, hit you and cause damage uh, because you are not protected necessarily by all of the atmosphere and all of the um, magnetic field because you're sort of in a uh, higher band of the magnetic field when you're out in space. So the CubeSat was called the uh, Colorado Student Space Weather Experiment And uh, it housed a small energetic particle telescope designed to measure the flux of solar energetic protons and Earth's radiation belt electrons. So the satellite was actually launched back in 2012 and involved the work of more than 65 students. The satellite was controlled for more than two years from a uh, ground station the students built on top of the LASP building. This is really a beautiful result and a big insight derived from a remarkably inexpensive student satellite, illustrating that good things can come in small packages, said Daniel Baker, co-author of the paper and LASP director. It's a major discovery that has been there all along, a demonstration that Yogi Berra was correct when he remarked, you can observe a lot just by looking. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, this is a very cool and important project that was funded by the National Science Foundation, which, uh, is an extremely important part of keeping our scientific edge in the world. And, uh, like everything else that is good and wholesome, uh, is currently under attack in this, uh, political, uh, situation right now. Um, So yeah, sorry that this has been kind of a political show, but it's really hard not to be political these days. Um, It's really very hard, uh, even when talking about science, because a lot of science is threatened by what is going on in Washington um, right now. Okay, let us uh, move on (laughs) and talk about a story that you've almost certainly uh, seen. Well, maybe not, uh, but I certainly saw it many times on my uh, news feeds. This is the fact that uh, there has been a uh, tick found encased in amber and attached to a dinosaur feather. Now, of course, this seems like a very fortuitous time for this to come out. Uh, it's just in time for the release of the first trailers for the new Jurassic Park movie, uh, which I have to admit I will probably see probably in the theater. Um, <laughs> I know that it's not uh, exactly scientific. Uh, and of course, they they do explain that, um, that, you know, it's clearly not that you're using pure dinosaur DNA when you're making these Jurassic Park dinosaurs that they had to kind of cobble things together and they also tweaked it to make them look more like people thought that dinosaurs should look, uh, hence the no feathers and such. But anyways, (laughs) um, that is definitely one of those sort of guilty pleasure franchises for me. And uh, on that note, before you go thinking about it, uh, no you will not be able to get any DNA uh, from these ticks. Uh, DNA degrades on the order of thousands of years, uh, not millions of years, uh, and therefore cannot possibly be extracted from any animal from the time of the dinosaurs, even with the preservation of amber. Um, and in fact, amber doesn't really do much of anything uh, for preservation on top of just the normal preservation. But it is an extremely cool find nonetheless, um, because it's the first time where we've actually seen that uh, these are linked together. And so uh, these, this parasite and the feather were preserved in a 99 million year old piece of Burmese amber. And it confirms again that it almost certainly was preying on a dinosaur. Now, we don't know what dinosaur it was. We don't have any other evidence except for the feather, um, but it's still very cool. And in fact, it's the oldest example at this point of a parasite and part of a host found together. Ticks are infamous blood sucking parasitic organisms, having a tremendous impact on the health of humans, livestock, pets, and even wildlife. But until now, clear evidence of their role in deep time has been lacking, says lead researcher Enrique Peñalever from the Spanish Geological Survey. In addition to the tick found with the feather, another tick, one of them even engorged with blood, was found in amber of the same um, age. And so this has been called Dinocroton Draculai, or Dracula's Terrible Tick. <laughs> Sometimes scientists are good at naming things. Not always. Assessing the composition of the blood meal inside the bloated tick is not feasible, because unfortunately, the tick did not become fully immersed in resin, and so its contents were altered by mineral deposition, explains Dr. Xavier Declo, an author of the study from the University of Barcelona, um, and IRBio. Now, while not directly tied to dinosaur remains, it is almost certainly also a parasite that feasted on dinosaurs. The simultaneous entrapment of two external parasites, the ticks, is extraordinary and can be best explained if they had a nest-inhabiting ecology, as some modern ticks do living in the host nest or in their own nest nearby, says one of the team, David Grimaldi of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Um, and just as an aside, one of the cool things about this story, too, is shows how, um, how much a lot of this science is extremely international. So we've got people from Barcelona and people from New York, and um, that's one of the really cool things about science, I think, is how uh, it has become such a wonderful international uh, collaboration between different scientists across the world. Um, And in fact, as we talk about uh, sort of the defunding of science, you may have heard, uh, this is just an aside, but the very cool news that um, the president of France, um, Macron, has uh, basically said, well, if the U.S. isn't going to fund climate research, we will. And we invite American uh, researchers and researchers from um, pretty much anywhere to come and pitch their uh, ideas and see if they qualify for funds from us. And so hooray that somebody's doing it. Um, Unfortunately, you know, it really should be America. But you know, these things happen, apparently huh. um, so anyways, yes, so that is very exciting, um, that at least someone is stepping up, and um you know, there's also a lot of private sector people are doing things, so basically, what I'm saying is that there's not no hope, there's just less hope than there used to be. um, I know that uh some of the major uh investment firms are sort of divesting themselves from um supporting uh oil and natural gas um investing and things like that. So hopefully, you know, there is some hope that things will be okay. Um, but you know, on the other hand, the Arctic is melting pretty much way faster than anyone thought it would. And um other terrible things that are happening. So a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's uh, take a break <laughs> and do some PSAs, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about something much better. We'll talk about the opportunity to uh, participate in a citizen science project. Um, I'm always always of the opinion that if you have any time extra that you would like to do something with. Citizen science projects are the best, uh, especially ones where you can just basically open up your computer and do something, and you can actually contribute in real time to real scientific discoveries. Okay, so hang on for just a moment, and I will be right back. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. It's against my religion. I'm giving my dog a bath. You can have pictures of that. Pressure gives me hives. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. Hold on. Let me ask my mom. Sorry, my webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. Unfortunately, I just had my clothes surgically attached to my body. If they got out, I might never be president. I'm already naked under my clothes. Not even if you were all three Jonas Brothers. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. The more you ask, the less I want to. You're not the boss of me. Nudity makes me vomit. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that's dot brought to you by the ad council. Okay. We are back and we are going to talk about a fun citizen science project. And uh, this kind of flows off of our former story because this is actually about dinosaurs Feathered dinosaurs. Okay, not really. It's about birds. But birds basically are feathered dinosaurs. They are uh, theropod dinosaurs. And so this is very exciting. It's called Project Plumage. And so what it is, is that researchers have photographed 35,000 bird specimens from the London Natural History Museum. Uh, they actually took over 210,000 Thousand images. And so obviously, they're now in need of some help from citizen scientists to analyze all of this data. So, currently, there are around 10,000 species of birds living around the world, and they're hoping to eventually get them all into uh, the database. And so, these birds represent a vast spectrum of colors and patterns. And the researchers um, definitely are hoping that they can get every single one of them so that we can really be able to do a comprehensive uh, breakdown of all of the data. And so Dr. Gavin Thomas of the University of Sheffield uh, is the leader of the project, and he explains that... Animal color can have many functions from attracting mates to camouflage. When we think about the diversity of birds, color is one of the most striking features. We want to learn more about how this diversity came to be and test how the evolution of different colors leads to the origin of new species. Um, And in fact, just another aside, uh, there was a story a while back where you could only tell that a species was different um, by one little patch of color, I believe. Um, And there are even species of birds that you can't tell the difference between unless you listen to their song, but that's a different thing. And uh, so what's neat is about this is that there's actually another layer to this. And so birds can see in both visible light and ultraviolet. So each bird specimen was photographed twice in order for more accurate data detection. And so all of the project data will eventually be made freely available. Um, And so it is going to be a very exciting and also a very open and um, available data set. So that's very exciting. You're not going to be contributing to something that will then be behind a paywall or anything like that. Um, We are really excited about Project Plumage and the new discoveries that will emerge from the hundreds of thousands of images. The data we collect will be added to the museum's open access data portal. So we hope that the data we collect will add to the value of the museum's collections, as well as a new perspective on the diversity of birds themselves, notes Dr. Thomas. And so all you need to do to participate is to go to the Project Plumage website, um, which is linked on the Facebook, and it should already be visible and up for you. Um, And so each identification uh, should only take a few minutes. And so the researchers are asking you to to identify the areas on the bird um, that are colorful and, you know, very straightforward. This project gives people a special opportunity to see and work on bird collections that are not on public display, making new discoveries and real contributions to advancing our knowledge of the natural world, explains Lucy Robinson, the museum's citizen science program manager. And again, you don't need any special training. uh, So if you're interested, head over to the link um, or Google uh, Project Plumage. And you'll find it uh, right away. It's on the uh, Zooniverse portal, which if you're not interested in this, if you go to Zooniverse, um, you'll find a range of different uh, citizen science um, opportunities available and projects and all sorts of things that you can help out with. And you're doing real research when you do this. Um, You know, it may not seem like much, you're just clicking some stuff on a website or you're just writing down a few notes on something, but this is real data that will be used by real researchers to potentially make real breakthrough uh, findings about some of these things that are being uh, examined. And so I am definitely a huge booster, as you can tell, uh, for citizen science projects. I love the idea of being able to contribute to science in this kind of way. And um, You know, it's easy, it's accessible, um, and you can really make a difference. So obviously, go do it. Um, Okay, so let us move on to something completely different. Uh, I feel like this is kind of a story uh, devoted to finding the silver lining in a Terrible situation, um, and so this is basically um, there is some new reporting coming out about uh, this project that's been going on for a while, and so basically what it is is that a group of researchers has used spy satellite imagery uh, of Afghanistan, and uh, so it's being it's proving to be an unexpected boon for archaeologists now. Clearly, right now, archaeologists can't really do any field work in uh, Afghanistan, which has been plagued by Taliban insurgency for many years and which honestly has been a center of center for conflict as back as far back as history can remember. Um, That's a whole different story for a different day about how Afghanistan has never been a stable country. And I don't understand why people think it can be today. But anyways, um, And so clearly archaeologists have to sort of think outside the box. And so what they're doing is they are finding thousands of never before cataloged ancient sites across the country using this data. And so it's a collaboration between the US Department of State and archaeologists. And so what they have Given them access to is not only commercial satellite data, but also US spy satellite data and even military drone images. And so this allows the researchers to see parts of the country that are too remote or otherwise uh, too dangerous to explore. And so they reported last month at the American School of Oriental Research. And so team members revealed that they have more than tripled the number of published archaeological features in Afghanistan, bringing the total to more than 4,500. And in addition to finding new sites in the images, the new burst of information has inspired older archaeologists to emerge from retirement to add information from their previous expeditions to the site's inventory. And so the discoveries run the gamut of ages and sizes uh, from uh, which are basically huge complexes. Uh, they were designed for caravan travelers. Um, they would have been built from the early centuries BCE right up until the 19th century. Um, and they also found things like a network of canals that would have been invisible from the ground, even if you could have gone there. So the project is called the Afghan Heritage Mapping Partnership, and it's the brainchild of archaeologist Jill Stein, or Gil Stein, excuse me, of the University of Chicago. And so in 2014, he and other researchers met with Afghan President Mohammed Ashraf Ghani, uh, who had earned a PhD in anthropology from Columbia University and had served as the World Bank's top anthropologist before, you know, going on to become Afghan president. (laughs) And so the president asked them to create a detailed map of the ancient sites across the country. He said cultural heritage is the key to economic development, and in a country so divided, critical for a strong national identity, Stein recalls. So in 2015, the project was then awarded a $2 million grant from the State Department and given access to its database of images. Now, recent findings include 119 caravansaries um, from the late 16th and early 17th century, uh, which were spaced around 20 kilometers apart which is roughly a day's journey with a large caravan. And so these are strung across the country's southern deserts. Uh, These mud brick buildings would have been around the length of a football field on each side and would have housed hundreds of people and thousands of camels. And so this line of basically oases uh, would have connected the capital of the Safavid Empire, um, Isfahan, which is now in the country of Iran with the Mughal empire uh, that dominated the Indian subcontinent at that time. And so this route would have been used um, among those uh, people who were traveling upon it to carry precious goods and other important trade items. Um, So it would have been very similar uh, to the Silk Road, um, which was, which would have been traversed in the north part of the uh, country in an earlier time frame. Um, And so the Silk Road is a little bit earlier in time, but this is basically the same thing across the bottom of the uh, country between these two uh, empires. And what's really interesting about this, uh, Emily Boak, a U Chicago Heritage Analyst notes that the discovery of this clearly state-sponsored building project actually contradicts previous suggestions that the Safavid Empire was in decline by this period. There is a long-standing view that once the Portuguese entered, entered the Indian Ocean, opening sea lanes to Europe in the 16th century, no one bothered to cross Central Asia, said project manager Catherine Franklin also of UChicago, but this shows a huge infrastructure investment of the Safavids a century later. So again, we're finding out this new information based on these images. And so another team at UChicago, Anthony Laricella and Emily Hammer, who's actually now at the University of Pennsylvania, Examined images of the northern region of the country near the Balk Oasis, uh, which borders Uzbekistan, and so what they found using their satellite data, um, and this is some of the satellite data. Basically, makes Google Earth look like a Polaroid. Um, uh, you know, for any of you who are, have delved into any of the conspiracy sort of minded things, where they talk about spy satellites, like not all of that is a conspiracy. Like some of these by satellites can see extreme detail Um, and so yeah having access to that is really really amazing for these archaeologists and so what they found is over a thousand settlements which show shifting patterns of habitation over the centuries as the Balkab river shifted course and of course people then moved to follow the water. Now, previous Soviet surveys of the area had found a mere 77 large settlements in the area. Uh, So they have found all of these amazing settlements uh, from big cities to small villages all across this area and also following the shifting patterns of the water. And because of this, um, they are able to... uh, they are matching data of known sites that have been dated. Uh, The researchers can begin to actually date these settlements in conjunction with the movement of the river in time. And they actually believe that doing this, um, finding out about this data will help to trace a central locus of the Silk Road between China and Europe. Um, So again, the Silk Road would have gone through the northern part of Afghanistan. um, And that is a little bit, back in time, uh, closer to sort of Roman times onward. Um, So yeah, uh, again, another one of those sort of things about how people in the past were just as amazing and cool as people in the present. Uh, People were making connections between China and the West a lot earlier than I think a lot of people uh, realize, unless they've actually been paying attention in world history uh, class, that you know, the Romans knew about the, uh, Asian world and they had contact with it. Um, and especially into, uh, sort of the middle ages, there was a lot of contact, uh, between the two. And so, yeah, um, that is very cool. And again, uh, one of the other things I noted was that there are archeologists who have retired that are coming back to aid the work. And so for instance, In the 1970s, a U.S. Afghan team led by anthropologist William Truesdale, uh, then of the Smithsonian Institution, uh, surveyed 40,000 square kilometers of the Sistan and Helmand regions of the country. But by 1979, well, the Soviet invasion had kind of made it impossible to continue their work. And so Truesdale, who is now 87, is overseeing an effort to analyze and publish 15,000 photos, along with dozens of field notebooks that have literally been languishing for decades in his garage. Um, When I read that, I was just like, oh, no. (laughs) I mean, Thank goodness he kept them. Um, Thank goodness that he had the presence of forethought and probably the deep connection and feeling of, you know, it would be a tragedy to lose these even if the survey was never completed um, to have kept them. And so many of the sites found um, in this area were from the Parthian Empire, which flourished at the same time as Rome. Um, And so some of the new research coming out of this suggests that they tolerated a host of traditions, uh, despite the empire being officially associated with Zoroastrianism. So for instance, they found some Greek writing and some other writing that um, sort of implies that people were... Um, in this place. And, you know, they weren't necessarily conforming to uh, becoming Parthian. They were, you know, people from other places living and working there without having to assimilate. And so Stein is overseeing construction of a geographical information system so that it can be used by the Afghan Institute of Archaeology Uh, in Kabul and the Kabul Polytechnic University in order to aid in future development and preservation. This technology for cultural heritage management is very crucial, said Noor Agha Nori, who is the director of the institute, um, the Afghan Institute for Archaeology. And so one of the surprising facts they found, though, as they've been looking through these images, is that ancient sites in areas not controlled by the Taliban have actually fared worse, worse than those inside those areas that are controlled by the Taliban. Now, obviously, the Taliban is known for destroying things, but uh, they're not necessarily actively looking for things to destroy. Um, they've destroyed some things that were very obvious, and easy to kind of Uh, find and destroy. So for instance, the Buddha, um, you may have watched the video, I never actually managed to watch it because it was just too upsetting for me. I just couldn't actually watch the footage. Um, And they also have been known to destroy museum, um, you know, artifacts in museums, but they're not just going out, they're too busy doing other things, unfortunately. And um, so in areas that are not controlled by the Taliban, um, unfortunately, these sites are vulnerable to basically the usual issues that all ancient sites are uh, vulnerable to across the world, which is development, mines, roads, and of course, the ever present issue of looting. And so Nori hopes that by finding and identifying these ancient sites, uh, more destruction can be avoided. And again, what they're hoping for is that in the future, there will be a uh, greater amount of preservation. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about animal dialects researchers from Cardiff University's UK Otter Project have discovered that genetically distinct populations of wild otters actually have their own regional odors for communicating vital information. Now, of course, this would be important to know uh, when considering conservation efforts. So Dr. Elizabeth Chadwick from Cardiff University's School of Biosciences uh, explains that Many mammals have scent glands for leaving chemical messages that provide identifying information regarding sex and age. Our new research reveals that these odors might also reveal genetic differences. So, um, again, the researchers found that not only were the scents distinct based on genetic similarity or difference, but they also found that groups of otters with the most distinctive odor profiles were the most gene- genetically diverse. So, um, And so as she sort of alluded to, odor markings of odors of otters (laughs) are highly informational. Uh, They can tell you about um, the otter's age, their sex, their reproductive status, and each odor is at least somewhat distinctive to that particular individual. So it tells you exactly who it is um, or which otter it is, I should say. Our findings raise some interesting questions. In the same way that people from London may not understand some of the verbal dialect of people from Cardiff, groups of otters with different odor dialects may not be able to pick up identifying information from each other. Without further research, it is unclear how the otters interpret the chemical differences in secretions. If they don't like or understand unfamiliar scents, these differences might hinder mixing in the same way that people sometimes avoid those who are culturally different. On the other hand, genetic diversity makes individuals healthier. So being attracted to unfamiliar smelling otters might be part of an evolutionary mechanism to avoid inbreeding and drive genetic mixing. Given the evidence that difference in scent does reflect genetic differentiation, it is something that ought to be given more attention, for instance, in species recovery programs and captive release. Huh. (laughs) So, yeah, very interesting that, you know, these very seemingly common animals we can still find out new things about. Um, Again, sort of science boosterism, you know, there's still so much for us to learn about Uh, animals, about the world, about nature, about the universe. Um, Okay. (laughs) Uh, So finally, tonight, I wanted to tell this story because I thought it was pretty excellent. It's basically about a cryptid of sorts, uh, not necessarily the Mothman or uh, Bigfoot, but definitely an animal that we uh, thought might be out there, but didn't yet know uh, actually was. Um, so again, not quite as exciting. It is a blue and white clear-winged moth known as Heterosphyxia Tawanides. And uh, so prior to recently, it was known to science only via a single damaged museum specimen collected in Indonesia in 1887. No one had ever seen one alive. Until recently, when a live example of this beautiful moth, which mimics a bee and has an iridescent blue sheen, was uh, observed by Marta skowron Volponi, an entomologist from the University of Gdansk in Poland. And uh, so she was visiting the Taman Nagara National Park in Malaysia. So the insect got away from her, uh, but she knew that she'd seen it, and so she came back. uh, And so her and her husband, wildlife filmmaker Paolo Volponi, have observed 12 individuals of H. tatawandis in uh, what is basically this amazing jungle, this amazing 130-million-year-old Taman Nagara jungle. You think about moths and you envision a gray, hairy insect that is attracted to light, the scientist said. Um, But this species is dramatically different. It is beautiful, shiny blue in sunlight, and it comes out during the day. The moth is not only interesting because it hasn't been seen in over 100 years, but it's also a great example of what is referred to as Batesian mimicry. And so this is when a harmless species, like a moth, imitates one that has a more proactive approach to defense, such as a stinger or bite. In this case, the moth has developed translucent wings and a furry body. Well, I say furry, but the fur is actually scales that have evolved to mimic the hairs of bees. It is a master of disguise, mimicking bees on multiple levels and even hanging out with them. Um Volponi said in a press release. In addition, it also flies in zigzags and buzzes like a bee. And um, the team the two also described other behaviors, uh, including the interesting phenomenon of mud puddling, uh, which is when a male moth uses their mouth parts to collect sodium uh, from mud to give to females as a mating offering. So very interesting. And Skyrun Volponi hopes that by highlighting the unique nature of this moth, she can raise awareness about the impact of deforestation in Malaysia, which has the highest rate of forest loss at the moment uh, in the world. And so deforestation, for instance, can cause mudslides that destroy ecosystems. Once those riverbanks vanish, she said in the release, so too will all of these species, including my favorites, the clear-wing moths. So... Hopefully, this beautiful moth will help some people realize that uh, they should do some more conservation work there. Okay, we are out of time for tonight. I will be back uh, next week. Please do stay tuned for civil politics. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.